0: Hey everybody, and welcome back. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and housed on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. If you haven't had a chance yet, uh, check out the Ezra Institute. Check out the Rebel Alliance. Uh, these are some these are two great um, great resources. Do yourselves, do your families a favor. Check out the the podcasts, the articles, videos, blogs, debates. Loads of resources to help you understand and engage with the culture from a biblical perspective. So that's the Rebel Alliance Media Network and the Ezra Institute. My name is Ryan, and we're going to follow up on a uh, a live stream experiment that we did a couple of weeks ago. We started out um, with a with a reading because we're going to do an audio book of uh, one of Joe Boot's books. This is the book here. It's called For Mission, and we're doing a live reading so that we can get an audiobook. We're experimenting and uh, getting our feet wet with, with lo- Facebook Live. We're kind of late to the party with, uh, with technology, so thanks for bearing with us. Last time we were here, we read the, the introduction and the first chapter from, uh, from this book. The uh, the first chapter was called Churchianity or Christianity, and today we're gonna uh, we're gonna try to read the second half of the book. It's broken up into three sections, uh, so we're gonna talk today. I'm gonna read today from What is the Church, the philosophical foundations of Churchianity, and the recovery of Christianity. So thanks for uh, thanks for being with me like i said and i'll uh i'll remind us i'll remind everybody through the throughout the reading this is for an audiobook you're going to hear me make some false starts because i'm human because i not normally i'm not normally tuned to wanting to be in front of a camera or in front of a microphone so i'd like you to be uh especially patient with me we're going to there's there's going to be some uh, some restarts there's going to be some throat clears i've got myself some water, and I've got myself a, uh, a nice new room. So I'm, uh, I'm grateful for that. Anyway, here we are. Thank you for being with us. Let's, uh, let's get going. Here's, uh, here's the next section. What is the church? Was that weird? That sounded a bit weird. I'm going to try it again. <clears throat> what is the church? An important question that arises from all this is, what is the church? And with reference to the question of cultural theology and philosophy, what philosophy is at work in the thinking of those who limit the kingdom of God and direct rule of Christ to the church institute and its activities, who advocate churchianity? In the scriptures, the people of God are identified as those who are called out by the Spirit, gathered together as a body, and appointed to a task. With the dispersion of the Jews, the synagogue became the center for worship and instruction for the covenant people, a pattern that was carried over into the new <clears throat> a pattern that was carried over into the Christian era with the local church pattern. In the Newer Testament, the people of God are called the Ecclesia, a called-out and renewed people, likewise appointed to go and bear fruit, John fifteen sixteen. Biblically, then, the church is clearly a people whose lives in their totality are oriented toward the gospel of the kingdom. This life is evidently much more than the buildings, liturgies, and structures of the church institute in late medieval roman catholic or what's called <clears throat> in late medieval roman catholic or what's often called scholastic theology the church institute and kingdom of god basically coincide the church cathedral was called a basilica from the new testament greek term for royal or king and was thought to be the realm of christ where the church hierarchy was regarded as the means by which christ <clears throat> where the church hierarchy was regarded as the means by which Christ exercised his rule and authority. In this line of thinking, one that is still very much with us, no clear distinction is made between the church as organism and the church as institute. This results in the ecclesiasticizing of the entire life of the Christian community, clericalism and the spiritual ideal of holy orders and asceticism, which were common phenomena in the medieval world. It was not until the Reformation era that a clear distinction was again made between the Church functioning as organism and as institute. Abraham Kuyper crystallizes that distinction. Quote, The The conception of the instituted Church is much narrower than the Church, when taken as the body of Christ, for the latter includes all the powers and workings that arise from re-creation. The instituted church finds her province bounded by her offices, and these offices are limited to the ministry of the word, the sacraments, benevolence, and church government. All other expressions of the Christian life do not work by the organs of the special offices, but by the organs of the recreated natural life, the Christian family by the believing father and mother, Christian art by the believing artist, and Christian schools by the believing magister. In fact, the boundaries and limitations placed by God upon the church institute reflect the outward-facing purposes that the Sabbath church service serves. Because Christ Jesus in his resurrection life and power is the head of a new race and the founder of recreation or renewal of creation, the day of rest, Resurrection Sunday, opens up the new week so that Sabbath teaching and worship is directed toward the kingdom work of the six days ahead. The word liturgy literally means public work. Public worship prepares us for the very public cultural task ahead. The worshiping community on a Sunday is not directed only toward personal piety and getting the faithful to heaven. Rather, it is the place where God's people are prepared for the liturgy of life in all creation, Romans 12.1. As such, the church institute is established so that the church as organism can live out its kingdom life in the world. The Church Institute is service to this purpose. It is not to be a power center existing to serve, expand and enrich itself. Consider that in the Older Testament the tithe was paid to the Levites, who had a varied social and educational function in the. Cu- <clears throat> who had a varied social and educational function in the cultural life of the Hebrews. For those of you who are just showing up, I'm starting again um, every time I make a misstep because we're getting this for a recording for an audiobook. So I know, I've already read that. I'm getting back to it so I can do it better. Thanks. Consider that in the Older Testament, the tithe was paid to the Levites, who had a varied social and educational function in the cultural life of the Hebrews, rather than to the priests. This biblical scenario reveals that the institutional worship of the people received a tithe of the tithe, restricting both the size and power of the priestly office. The Church Institute is not an end in itself and does not exhaust the scriptural understanding of the Kingdom. The Church, therefore, has two clear modes of existence. The Church is manifest in temporal reality as both Institute and Organism. It is a worshipping community, an Institute with various offices and ministries, <coughs> Excuse me, and it is an organism, a living body of believers engaged in... <coughs> And it is an organism, a living body of believers engaged daily in the non ecclesiastical areas of life in service to Christ. We can certainly say that the Church is a unique body instituted by Christ of which He is the head. The Lord Himself gave it an organizational expression in the Apostolic Office and Sacrament. This body of Christ is first the invisible Church, then it is also the visible Church which is the historical manifestation of the invisible body seen organically in every area of life. Finally, the institutional church is the local organization and expression of that body of believers in a worshipping community with its functioning offices. The visible church thus embraces more than any particular church denomination. It is found wherever God's people are living faithful Christian lives in each area of life. Moreover, and critically for the purposes of this discussion, the body of Christ is manifest acro- <clears throat> The body of Christ is manifest across the full range of societal relationships, of which the local church institute is but one. Although the institutional church is of a special character, the kingdom of God and the visible church are not clearly identical. Sorry, although the institutional church is of a special character, the kingdom of God and the visible church are clearly not identical. In fact, Christ and his disciples were found preaching the gospel of the kingdom and people were entering into it long before any local churches were established and before there was any institutional expression of it in terms of church government. Nor are the invisible church and kingdom of God identical, because the rule and reign of Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, see Psalm 2 or Revelation 1-5, is not limited to those who love and obey him. That rule cannot be restricted to Christian people in their personal relationships, but extends to the entirety of created reality and all that believers do and form within God's world. Kuyper famously said that there is not a single square inch of the entire universe of which Christ the sovereign Lord of all does not say, this is mine. In view of this and over against Mark Dever's truncated view of discipleship, Gordon Spikeman writes, it is our obligation to honor this claim, i.e. of Christ's total lordship and sovereignty. Sorry, let me try that again. Gordon Spikeman writes, It is our obligation to honor this claim, i.e. of Christ's total lordship and sovereignty, and to press it whenever and wherever possible. This calls for political discipleship, academic discipleship, in short, for all sorts of cultural discipleships. This constitutes a truly staggering agenda. Such an agenda for discipleship seems startling to modern evangelicals nurtured on churchianity, The notion that the Christian's Christians confrontation with systematic unbelief in culture should be responded to with systematic and comprehensive belief is simply foreign. This is in large measure due to a fundamental doubt in the evangelical mind that a specifically Christian view or approach to anything in culture in general is really necessary. After all, isn't common grace enough? This idea is usually vague enough to mean that the vast majority of things in life, from education to politics and art, can be dealt with in abstraction from the Christian world and life view, that is, in a neutral way. On the one hand, men and women, believers or not, can think of themselves... (coughs) Sorry, i start again. On the one hand, men and women, believers or not, cannot think themselves loose from God's world. By virtue of creation and being made in God's image human beings are compelled to deal with the real world as god has made it even in their apostasy and this does not mean i keep getting my negatives mixed up (laughs) change the whole meaning of the book i'll try not to do that by virtue of creation and being made in god's image human beings are compelled to deal with the real world as god has made it even in their apostasy and this does mean we may, fa- <clears throat> and this does mean we may often find ourselves in broad agreement with non-Christians in a variety of areas. Common grace, or better, creation grace, simply means that even after the fall, the creational structures in which we continue to live and find meaning remain valid in order to maintain creatural existence. Laws which govern motion, growth, thought, sexual distinctions, and so forth persisted despite sin. The entrance of sin, however, struck at the direction of lives. Sexual acts, thought acts, acts of motion, and so forth. So the Christian response to the radical misdirection of the fall must be a comprehensive Christianity, Christ-saving grace into every area of life. Just because unbelievers do not all suppress the truth to the same degree and acting in orderly ways graciously preserved within the creation ordinances often stumble upon many wonderful secrets of the creation, does not mean we are excused as Christians from systematically manifesting the saving grace of Christ in each area of life. But the conserving gift of common grace is all too often made into a complete disgrace by Christians who refuse to obey the gospel of God by bringing all of life into subjection to the word of God. Seerveld has said it well, quote, <clears throat> God's conserving work does not permit the newborn Christian to be satisfied with a common grace culture Christianized. For then the Christian would be denying that the good news has the power to set radically right what sin has misdirected and unbelievers are prostituting, however honorably. The Christian would then be selling the peculiar birthright we share as children of Christ, the right to be the proper lords of creation's development. If the gospel was not allowed, if the gospel was not allowed to shed its full light for time-bound recreation as well as for eternal salvation it is a regrettable mistake to think that because our gracious god's cosmonomic theater allows all humanity to act coherently that this absolves the christian community from our special calling to praise god ourselves holy <clears throat> what was that sorry i'm going to start again hey nate hey rachel It is a regrettable mistake to think that because our gracious God's cosmonomic theater allows all humanity to act coherently, that this absolves the Christian community from our special calling to praise God ourselves wholly, unreservedly in the bonds-bursting power of the Holy Spirit. What Sierveld is rightly resisting here is the what Sierfeld is rightly resisting here is the synthesizing motive of churchianity which wants to use robbery from anti-Christian culture as a synthetic solution to the Christian life, to regard the Church Institute as the only distinctly Christian sphere of life, and simply adopt the world's way of doing politics, medicine, law, art, education, and much else besides, in the name of common grace, with the saving grace of Christ perhaps sprinkled here and there as a condiment. This is indeed a disgrace but it appears acceptable when we <clears throat> but it appears acceptable when we do not recognize that all societal relationships are required to express in this temporal life the fullness of our religious principle of life all the spheres in which we function must be permeated with the christian life principle the body of christ the universal and organic covenant people of god can only reject this requirement to make all things holy to the lord if we view the earth as completely destitute after the fall and simply a stage for the church institute to battle through its spiritual life as pilgrims on the way to somewhere else. But this is surely not the biblical picture. As Kuiper wrote, quote, the world after the fall is no lost planet, only destined now to afford the church a place in which to continue her combats. And humanity is no aimless mass of people which only serves the purpose of giving birth to the elect. On the contrary, the world now, as well as in the beginning, is the theater for the mighty works of God, and humanity remains a creation of His hand, which, apart from salvation, completes under this present dispensation here on earth a mighty process, and in its historical development is to glorify the name of Almighty God. Quote. If this is the scriptural position regarding God's sovereignty over all men and all of history, and I believe it is, What is the fountainhead of the idea that the church institute and its work is essentially identical with the kingdom of God, reducing the Christian calling to the sole task of witnessing and providing discipleship for believers' personal spiritual life? What led to the view that planting more churches practically exhausts the mandate of God's people? In short, what is the religious root of churchianity? That's the end of that chapter. Good to have you with me. Thanks for tuning in. All right, moving on. The Philosophical Foundations of Churchianity. Just had to check my recording, make sure that this wasn't all going on in vain, but we're okay. We saw in passing that according to scholastic theology, the Church Institute coincides completely with the Kingdom of God, giving rise to the ecclesiasticizing of life ubiquitous in the medieval... that was a long sentence and i wasn't prepared for it i didn't uh, what didn't re- wasn't ready to go the distance we saw in passing that according to scholastic theology the church institute coincides completely with the kingdom of god giving rise to the ecclesiasticizing of life ubiquitous in the medieval catholic view of reality giving rise to the ecclesiasticizing of life ubiquitous in the medieval roman catholic view of reality however as we will see, the churchianity that persists among evangelicals in our age posits an even more radical ecclesiasticizing of life, where the link between creation and redemption, which scholastic thought struggled to maintain, has been all but severed. In both cases, lying beneath this dualistic perspective is actually a non Christian philosophy of life. The scholastic tradition essentially sought to Christianize the pagan Greek view of nature, composed of form and matter, in order to forge, via this synthesis, a meaningful connection between the credible philosophical views of the ancient world, especially in the thought forms of Aristotle, and the Gospel. In fact, in 1263, Pope Urban IV reminded Christian scholars that a decree of Pope Gregory IX, which forbade the teaching of Aristotle as mediated by the Arabs, at the same time called on them to interpret Aristotle for the Christian faith. William of Morbeek and Thomas Aquinas were summoned to the papal court to assume the task of assimilating Aristotle into the Christian world of thought. Aquinas's purposes reflected a supreme confidence shared by many that an establishment of Christian truth upon the foundation of the reason of autonomous man was possible. However, in reality, the Aristotelian concept of nature and of man cannot be reconciled with the biblical view of man as God's image-bearer and the free act of creation— the calling into being of the totality of reality from nothing by the triune and totally sovereign god on the ancient greek view nature was the product of impersonal divine re- <coughs> on the ancient greek view nature was the product of impersonal divine reason giving form to an uncreated matter these two poles stood over against each other Greek thought saw nature as composed of form, spirit, or idea, and matter. In this dualism, matter was the lower realm, and spirit, idea, or form, the higher, superior realm. Consequently, for many Greek thinkers, the body was a prison for the soul from which one ought to seek escape. Early Gnostics and Marcionite heretics in the early Church expressed this dualism both by denigrating the body in creation, some claiming that the material world was created by a lesser god or demiurge, and by driving a wedge between the Older and Newer Testaments, between law and gospel, creation and redemption. The one belonged to the lower realm of matter, the other to the higher realm of idea and spirit. When certain Christian thinkers like Thomas Aquinas later tried to harmonize Christianity with Greek thought on the basis of an unfallen reason, they essentially adopted the Greek view of nature as form and matter, but added that in order for man to truly understand himself and his spiritual nature, in order to be truly fulfilled and saved, grace must be added. With the intellectual soul being absolute form, man's knowledge and and understanding of reality in terms of independent reason was fine as far as it went, i.e. for all the ordinary stuff of life, for philosophy and education, science and art, politics and government, however for... Excuse me. I had a pizza right before I came up here, and it's uh, settling. Was that too much information? (sighs) However, for spiritual life and the way of salvation, that is, for the realm of faith, man needed the addition of grace, a supernatural addition. In short, on top of nature, one needed a second story to complete life. Grace must be added in order to perfect nature. In this way, the scholastic tradition sought to maintain a link between the gospel of redemption in Christ and a philosophical view of nature inherited from Greek philosophy. This attempted, synthesis, this attempted synthesis of incompatible views led to the emergence of the idea of a secular and sacred realm, one ruled over by reason and natural law, the other by grace and special revelation. This gave the Church Institute the roles of mediator of salvation in the sacred realm, the Church or Kingdom of God, and spiritual director of society when playing the role of chaplain to a secular government which went about its common tasks in terms of the dictates of reason. At times, nature and grace, or emperor and pope, battled it out for supremacy in terms of who anointed whom. However, in the 14th century, a Franciscan monk named William of Ockham denied that there was a real point of contact between the realms of nature and grace. Aquinas had tried to tie the Greek concept of nature to the faith of the Church, but Occam denied that these could be held together. He held to the idea of a divine arbitrariness. Human reason could not find out nor prove God. Belief in God was simply a matter of faith, not of knowledge. And so, cutting the link between nature and grace, knowledge and faith, between creation and redemption, he rejected the idea of a Christianized society holding to the complete sovereignty of secular government. Sorry, I lost my place there. Secular government, something, something. Okay, here we are. In many respects, Occam anticipates the modern period of history, shunting off the supernatural Christian life, the realm of reason, sorry, the realm of faith and revelation to another world and privatizing Christianity to the and privatizing Christianity to the church and individual believer. The 20th, the 20th century Dutch Christian philosopher Hermann Doyeword observes that Occam's criticism of the nature-grace link left two options for Christians. Quote, One could either return to the scriptural ground motive of the Christian religion or, in line with the new motive of nature severed from the faith of the church, establish a modern view of life concentrated in the religion of the human personality. The first path... The first path led to the Reformation. The second path led to modern humanism. End quote. Oh, that's right, Michael. I was peeking. Who's watching? I can see it here. Looks like I've got a uh, a bad network connection here. I'm gonna keep on reading, and I hope that uh, I hope that this sorts itself out. I've got a I've got an internet connection, but no. Uh, no video. Oh, guys, I'm sorry about that. I think uh, I think we're back now. I had a bad connection for reasons that I uh, I can't really explain. So I uh, I know I know that uh, you all got kicked off there. Sorry about that. I'm gonna give everybody a second to uh, to find their places again, and we'll come back come back for the rest of this reading. Okay. Hey, there's a couple of people. Hey, Rachel, thanks for coming back. I had a bad uh, bad internet connection there, but we're, uh, we're going to carry on. Although we rightly associate the Reformation with Martin Luther, the Lutheran and Calvinistic view of the relationship of the gospel with culture, of creation and redemption, and consequently of the mission of God's people, developed in very different directions. Luther himself was educated in Ock <clears throat> Luther himself was educated in Occam's view of things when at the Erfurt Monastery. In fact, Luther openly declared, I am of Occam's school, and continued Occam's sharp distinction between natural life and supernatural Christian life. It is no surprise then that we do not find in Luther an intrinsic connection between the Christian faith and one's earthly life. We see the same dualism expressed in Luther's strong law gospel opposition. Another persistent error in modern evangelicalism. Here the Christian has nothing to do with the law, for the law is the <clears throat> Here the Christian has nothing to do with the law, for the law is for the sin nature and is viewed in an almost antithetical relationship to grace. The law is stripped by Luther of its function and importance as creational ordinance. As Doyward has pointed out, he did not acknowledge a single link between nature, taken with its lawful ordinances, and the grace of the gospel. Accordingly, redemption was seen as the death of nature rather than its renewal and rebirth. It is certainly the case that Luther rejected monasticism, but he, is radically inc- but he is radically inconsistent. Luther even contrasted God's will as the creator who places a person amidst the natural ordinances with God's will as the redeemer who frees a person from the law. Following the scholastic thinkers, and despite famously calling reason a whore, For Luther, reason remained the guide for the realm of nature, and there was no point of contact between this reason and the revelation of God's word. In the vein of Occam, he regarded secular government, social order, and justice as belonging to the domain of reason, not revelation. Although Luther was not thoroughly consistent and clearly saw a place for God's commandments in society because of the context of Christendom he inhabited, nonetheless a radical sacred secular divide remained in Luther's thought with ecclesiastical life identified with the kingdom of God. What was, pro- <clears throat> what was proper to the distinctly Christian life was the realm of grace, expressed in word and sacrament in the church, but justice, beauty and the like belonged to the realm of the sinful nature. Like many Christians before him, Luther did not recognize that the totality of a person's life and thinking in every area arises from a religious root. The result was that in Lutheran thought, a divide ran through the center of reality. Worldly life belonged to the realm of nature and law, and as such was troubled by an inner tension with the gospel of love that belonged to a higher supernatural realm. This tension remains entrenched in the thinking of many modern evangelicals who oppose law to grace or gospel, and who regard most of secular life as religiously neutral and governed by principles other than the word of God. There is no intrinsic point of contact for most evangelicals today between their vocation or cultural life and the Word of God. They belong to almost sealed domains. Moreover, creation itself is is consistently viewed as something to be finally escaped. At the very least, it is a devalued realm destined to be destroyed, and so again a tension runs through the lives of modern evangelicals between the sacred call to holiness given by the Church and their life everywhere else. Creation and redemption are essentially cut off from each other. So, sorry about the video. I've tried about six times to get to uh, get back online here, but there's there's some re- for some reason there's a bad connection, and I'm just going to keep on uh, pressing through with the reading. Many modern theologians, notably Karl Barth went on to develop a perspective that openly opposed the scriptural idea that <clears throat> that openly imp- that openly opposed the scriptural idea that there is no neutrality that in fact a religious antithesis is found in all the aspects of life in the world as a result bart and others in his stream of thought rejected the notion of christian politics scholarship and education ecclesiasticizing and privatizing the christian life <clears throat> Bart presses the logic of Greek dualism and argues that the word of God is wholly other, with no point of contact between nature, creation, and grace. Life in the world is then viewed exclusively in terms of the fall. As the doctrine of creation recedes from view, knowledge of the ordinances of creation is lost and creation and redemption are separated so as to divide God's will as creator and God's will as redeemer. Consequently, in place of God's law is established a vague and seemingly abstract command to love. All this is indicative of modern evangelicalism's denial that the totality of God's revelation is relevant to every area of life, and consequently that there is no such thing as a Christian view of education, law, art, politics, economics, scholarship, etc. Most of today's evangelicals have imprisoned the body of Christ, the organic church, and indeed the kingdom of God, within the walls of the church institute, its offices and ministries as a result the gospel itself is redacted to one small element of its full and glorious scope this intellectual lineage reveals that well-intentioned pastors and leaders who strongly influence contemporary ele- who strongly influence contemporary evangelicalism like mark dever are still in the grip of greek thought as it has come down to them via scholasticism lutheranism pietism and neo-orthodoxy retreatism pietism and churchianity Piety is an important quality of the Christian life. It denotes reverence toward God and sincere devotion. But pietism is the tendency to restrict the meaning of the Christian life to personal devotional disciplines and inward spiritual growth. Pietism, which has so afflicted all stripes of modern evangelicalism, was a movement beginning in German Lutheranism with theological foundations in medieval thought that quickly spread to the English-speaking world. The pietists tended to see biblical orthodoxy as dead religion, and boasted a more spiritual faith focused on the new birth and various devotional exercises. Emphasis was laid on emotion and feeling because doctrine were considered dry and intellectual. Because doctrine was considered dry and intellectual. There are significant evangelical church movements today that won't sing hymns for this very same reason. They are allegedly too intellectual and get in the way of emotional engagement with God. All dualism since Occam and especially as expressed in Pietism, has had the cultural effect of weakening the Church and strengthening the State. With its retreat inward, Pietism was completely unable to combat the forces of the Enlightenment, just as Lutheranism was found powerless with the rise of the Third Reich. The Enlightenment perspective saw the State, not the Church, as the truly universal institution. The Church was the area of private faith, whereas the State was the realm of reason." the state the state would therefore the state would therefore assert itself as the new arbiter of order given pietism's primary concern for spiritual life it did not contest this claim the same is true of modern evangelical pietism it has allowed the state to move into and control most of life and we have given up the majority of that ground uncontested while on the one hand emphasizing the church and spiritual life pietism actually allows the church to become an essentially peripheral institution irrelevant to the life of the world irrelevant to life in the world i know that uh in a, in a, uh, a live reading a lot of these would be no big deal but for uh for the purposes of the book i want to uh, make sure that we get them right so thanks for bearing with me when i when i stumble from time to time I'm also, I'm frustrated because of my video here. It keeps on dropping in and out, so I'm a little distracted. Thanks for bearing with me. All right, carry on. Hey, Andrew. Pietism also typically derides pleasure in life and the world. Viewing this present world as comparatively unimportant. Pietists often refuse to enjoy good food, marital sex, beauty, and indeed life's many joys with clear parallels to medieval asceticism. Out of such a distorted view of reality, pacifistic ideals also emerged, according to which being killed by thugs assaulting you in the street or being slain by invading military forces is preferable to killing one of the attackers, since the pietist knows he's going to heaven, but the hoodlum may not know Christ and would therefore go to hell. This kind of pious sentimentality is commonplace in today's evangelicalism, where God's law is neither known nor regarded as important the salvation of individuals from hell is seen as the preeminent concern for the pietist not the glory justice and kingdom rule of god from its inception pietism was implicitly antinomian seeing no place for god's law word and yet modern pietistic evangelicalism is divided up into numerous groups and yet modern pietistic evangelicalism is divided up into numerous groups denominations and communions all too ready to condemn one another for not being holy or spiritual enough, too charismatic or too reformed and doctrinal, rather than focusing on bringing every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ. Anyways, thanks, uh, thanks for bearing with me, those of you who have stuck it out, and we'll uh, we'll get this all sorted out, and for uh, for when we when we when we put it out uh, online later. All right, I'm just going to carry on and finish up this chapter. An immediate offspring of this dualism and pietism is retreatism. Modern churchianity seems to overlook many of the clear demands of scripture. In Matthew ten eight, we are told, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In 1 Corinthians 6, the believers are told to establish courts of arbitration to judge God's people in terms of God's word. We also see the believers in Acts caring for the poor, widows, and orphans. The early church quickly launched hospitals, care homes for abandoned children, schools, homes for the elderly without families, and much else besides. It was not a church in retreat from the world, but an organic body determined to live out the life of the kingdom, teaching and discipling all the nations in terms of everything Christ commanded. Long before the church was permitted to own buildings for worship, it had established a variety of institutions to meet needs. R. J. Rushduni has incisively commented, quote, "The personal impulse and theologically grounded faith that we have an obligation under God to minister to human needs, to bring every area of life under God's dominion. <clears throat> to bring every area of life under Christ's dominion and God's law, and the duty to make God's earth his kingdom, all this has been abandoned as the church has retreated into the position of a mystery religion or cult. All the world is surrendered to evil and only a little corner the church and the people in it represent Christ's domain. How will how will Christ the king treat a church that hands his how will Christ the king treat a church that hands his world over to his enemies? It is amazing how many people there are who actually believe they are holier and purer because they have surrendered one area after another to Christ's enemies. It is amazing how many people there are who actually believe they are holier and purer because they have surrendered one area after another to Christ's enemies. Because the Church Institute is rightly limited in its role and jurisdiction in the Christian life and human society, Whenever and wherever an unscriptural dualism reigns, where artificial divisions of nature and grace, law and gospel, creation and redemption are propounded, God and his word become theoretically imprisoned in the church, and Christ's reign is faithlessly limited to one's fear of life. All right, that's the end of that chapter, guys. Uh, thanks a lot for being with me. The recording was, or the, uh, the video was pretty brutal in some places, and I have, uh, I have no one to blame, but my internet service provider. So what, uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, I'll come back, uh, sometime soon in the next, uh, next week or so. And I'm going to read that chapter again for anybody who's interested. And we'll, uh, we'll also finish up with, uh, with one last short chapter. So thanks a lot for being with me. Really appreciate you, uh, tuning in and we will see you shortly. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.